And do you know the first three properties I bought were all positively cash flow properties without any money at all. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and in this episode, we're talking to property millionaire Dimfna Bolholt. We'll follow her incredible story from growing up poor on a cattle farm to turning her last $40,000 into a property empire or while she was a single mum with a baby on her hip and another one on the way. Keep listening to find out how she did it. Bolholt has many interesting things going for her, one of them being her name and the other being her outlook on the property world. Well, first of all, my name is a little bit unusual. It's Dimpner. It's actually, um, it's a Welsh and Irish is its origins and uh, nobody seems to, to be able to pronounce it correctly apart from the Welsh and the Irish. Um, it's, uh, I was the last of seven children so I think my mother ran out of names by the time she got to me. But anyway, it's, um, I founded the I Love Real Estate uh, community a long time ago now. It must have been over, oh, well, over 10 years. Um, I've been speaking on stage and educating people on how to invest their money wisely in the property market as well as a lot of peripheral uh, fundamentals which people need to know like asset protection, taxation, um, you know, legal parameters, contracts. Um, or, the, or everything, all the strategies in real estate because I firmly believe to really get ahead in real estate, it's not just about buying anything. It's very much about uh, doing manufactured growth and manufactured income strategies and being active in the market, particularly if you ever have a dream of replacing your income uh, and in doing it within a relatively short space of time, not the 40-year kind of mark that most people sign up for. And unfortunately, the road that most people sign up for is the negative gearing road. And I'm afraid that just keeps you in your job. It certainly doesn't enable you to replace your income. When Boholt isn't talking on stage, she has a day-to-day routine which includes actively engaging with the students and teaching them her knowledge. Well, my day is uh, is very varied actually. I mean, when I'm with my students, I'm 100% present. So I do a number of um, training events around the country, whether they be one-dayers, three-dayers, four-dayer I've got coming up very shortly. Um, so when I'm doing those, I'm very present and that's what I'm doing. When I'm at home here on the farm, I, I have an office here. I've got two full-time accountants. I've got other staff upstairs. And my, my day here probably starts at about 8 o'clock normally after I've been to the gym and those sorts of things. And I normally do um, – I'm very structured in my day. So I will have a certain time for my own portfolio. I will have a certain time for my – property education business and then I run a number of um, real estate businesses as well as in um, more active management um, properties in real estate, not just not just passive investments which need a lot more attention. So my day is very, very varied. She also shared a little trick to getting the hard stuff done during her day-to-day. And if I've got something that I don't like doing, I normally give myself a little reward um, for uh, or uh, getting the job done that I didn't want to go and do. Um, and that might be, you know, playing in the garden for 10 minutes or something or other. So something that I enjoy doing. It's a good little motivational tool because, you know, there's always things that you don't want to do. There's always tasks that, you know, it might be ringing up to chase a, a creditor or it might be, um, you know, tracking down a, a, um, um, a lease or, or negotiating on a, on a new insurance policy. And that's what I was doing this morning, actually, before you rang. I was negotiating on reducing one of my insurance policies, which I thought was far too exorbitant. And, uh, you know, they're jobs that you don't normally like to do because they involve a bit of wrangling and those sorts of things. So when I'm doing that, I, I, every morning I write my to-do list of uh, what I've got to get done for the day and I prioritize that to-do list. And there will be things on there that will be, a, oh, I've got to do that. And if you don't have a reward, it's very easy to throw it to the end, throw it to the end, and then it'll be on next next day's uh, to-do list. So it might just be, well, I'll get that done and then I'll go and have a cup of tea or something like that. This mindset is also very important in property investing. Absolutely. It's all about discipline. And I think real estate is definitely about discipline um, because you have to allocate time to the real estate business because that's what it is. It's a business. 
Um, you know, and even if you've got total passive income coming in from your property portfolio, you still need to, uh, you know, to look at it and review it and all of those other things. It's not, it's not a hundred percent passive. Boholt grew up on a farm but moved around a lot due to her father's failed endeavours in selling cattle properties. I grew up in central Queensland. Um, we grew up on, I grew up on a cattle station. My father moved around a lot um, when I was a kid. I think by the time I was in grade 7, I'd been to five different schools. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so it meant that I, um, you know, I was very res- resilient and quite independent and those sort of things because you know, you, you, when you're moving that, that often, you're very much on your own. And being the last of seven children, I'm eight, there's eight years between myself and my next sibling. So it was kind of like growing up with my grandparents, really. My father, bless his soul, um, he, uh, he didn't understand inflation, I'm afraid. So he would buy and sell, sell cattle properties at a loss. <laughs> I mean, the figure had gone up, the actual dollar figure went up, but he didn't really understand the power of inflation and how... Um, you can sell a property, but then if inflation's gone up in the meantime, you've got to rebuy in. And I think each time it was kind of getting a little bit less and a little bit less. So he wasn't a particularly good money manager, my father. Boholt's main talent wasn't always property. She was quite the athlete when she was in high school. I studied hard. I was very much into athletics. Um, so that was my, my physical outlet. 400 metres was my best race. I was actually only talking to my husband the other day because he's saying, oh, you know, can you run a um, 400 metres in a minute? I said, that was my training 400 metres in 60 seconds. And he goes, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. I think my best, though, was, was about oh, 56 was my absolute best. But, you know, that was a long time ago and there's a lot of wait between now and then too. <laughs> wait and three kids. After high school, she thought she knew what she wanted to do but one experience changed everything for her. I kind of settled down a little bit more in high school and um, I, uh, I got into university. I actually went overseas for a, for a year first. So I went overseas and you can imagine growing up on, you know, five and 10,000 acre properties and then going to downtown Bangkok and, and learning to cross 12 lanes of traffic one at a time. It was the biggest culture shock you've ever seen. That was straight after school. I finished school. I went overseas for 12 months. It was best best experience ever. Um, and, uh, you know, when I came back, I just, well, when I was going over, I, I thought I wanted to be a vet, but, um, you get to, to, to university and, you know, you talk to a, a female vet who came in to talk to all the new recruits and she said, well, realistically, you're going to have a, your hand up a cow's butt for the rest of your life. I mean, that doesn't sound very appealing to me. So I, <laughs> I, then the opportunity came up, up for me to go overseas on exchange. So I deferred university. I went overseas. And uh, when I came back, I decided I didn't want to be a vet. I, when I was over there, I stayed with a family who, the lady in particular, was pretty high up in business. And I was fascinated by the business world. So I used to wag school most of the time because I'd finished school here anyway. And I used to follow her around and go to meetings and take notes. And most of it was in Thai and this sort of thing. And I'd understand about, you know, half of it. But uh, it, was, it was good fun. It was a good experience. So when I came back, I did a um, – I started off doing – Asian studies, which meant I could continue with the language and um, economics, but I quickly switched to accounting and economics. So I came out with a double major in accounting and economics. Things were very different back then, though. I mean, there's plenty of job offers around. I think when I finished uni, there was I got about 15 job offers, and uh, I chose to go to uh, Coopers and Librand, one of the big accounting firms at the time, and I moved to Sydney then because I went to university in Canberra. Went to, to Sydney with that and um, for anyone who's been through that formal training, you'll understand what I mean when I say I served my time. <laughs> I got headhunted from there. I went into private enterprise and I was financial controller of a number of different organisations. Um, I was in oh, the banking industry at one stage, so was financial control of a stockbroking firm, um, the mining industry, a lot of different positions within the mining industry, manufacturing. I was even financial controller of a liquor distribution company at one stage and we had the best parties ever. <laughs> there was a big bar there that we had to have functions and entertain people and all of these sort of things. So it was a very different financial controller position, I can tell you. She'd seen a lot of writing small to large businesses by sales, leading Boholt to discover some newfound wisdom. Look, I feel um, that grounding was very good for me because it taught me a lot at a lot of different levels and to be able to re- relate to people at a lot of different levels, whether, you know, whether I was talking in the boardroom or whether I was, you know, running a mine of, you know, 160 men um, and I'm, you know, <laughs> female and all of those things. 
but you know, it didn't take long with it that um, you know those guys would do anything for me, which was which was really um, fantastic. But it was also uh, you know you get a lot of skills regarding um, leadership and um, and working as a team and those sort of things, which is something that I think is very important for uh, for real estate and a lot of the the formulas and calculations and and uh, analysis that I used to do back then to make decisions of you know two hundred three hundred million dollars of you know at a board level um, were the same kinds of strategies and techniques that I use now on a simplified version obviously to make decisions on on real estate and uh, it's something that I teach in my courses um, of how to actually analyze that sort of things because it, you know when you understand the numbers it's much easier to make a calculated decision. It's not just a haphazard approach because, as I said before, real estate really needs to be a business if you're going to be very successful at it. Bohold's parents had a strong influence over her decision to get into property, but not in the way that you'd think. Obviously, I think everything affects you, you know, parental growing up and those sort of things. But I feel that, um, you know, my childhood attitude towards money was very different to what I experienced when I was overseas. Um, my family was not wealthy at all. Uh, they probably had a very um, a lack attitude around money. And, um, you know, I, I think that gave me a burning desire that I never wanted to be poor. I never wanted to, um, you know, to, to live in the conditions that I had growing up. Um, it wasn't what I wanted, um, and I, I mean, I, you know, I had a good childhood. You know, my parents were great and all the rest of it. But um, the the money attitude was very, very different. I'll give you an example. When I was at university, um, I was at University of Canberra, and my parents lived up in Central Queensland. Both have passed on now. And um, when I drove home at Christmas time, I I got home when. They were, everybody was down at the yards dipping the cattle. And um, I said to, to mum, she was at home getting the afternoon tea, I said, look, don't take the old ute down, take my car. You know, I'll go home and surprise everybody that I'm home. So I'm unpacking my boot, which is, you know, 18, 19-year-old. I've got crap all over the, my, my boot like most 18, 9-year-olds have. And uh, I, um, I had a book lying in the bottom of the boot that I was reading at the time. And it was Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I can still to this day remember my mother's words. She picked up the book, read the title. She goes, think and grow rich. <laughs> what do you want to be rich for? And she threw the book back into the, into the boot. And that was pretty typical of the attitude around money that I grew up with. Um, whereas I had this rebellious nature that I didn't want that for me. You know, I, I wanted to live in a better house. I wanted to drive a better car. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to do all of these things. I had these, you know, very strong desires and dreams that I was going to fulfill. She explains why this was impactful for her. In one way, it was great because it gave me that absolute burning desire that I didn't want to grow up in with that lack attitude. But do you know that book, I never finished reading it until my mother died some 20 odd years later. Um, it was, you know, and it's remarkable how a lot of these things, it's not a conscious decision, it's a subconscious decision that you allow these things to influence you. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of people need you know, more understanding of and more training in to understand how you can revert, reverse those kind of pro- that programming, that automatic programming that we all run on. Because something that I do, yes, I teach real estate, but, but um, a big part of, of the training that I run alongside the real estate is the personal development growth that absolutely needs to be there because without that, no matter how much money you um, you make, you won't keep it unless you're creating the, the um, emotional growth that comes along with the financial growth. So, how did Bohol escape her parents' fate and begin her property journey? I started off in auditing um, and then I escaped auditing because I hate auditing. <laughs> And I got out, um, and then I went into small business services within um, Coopers and Librand, and that's where I then got headhunted and I became financial controller then of a number of different organizations. And it wasn't until um, my 30s when I was going through a very messy divorce that I decided, I made a conscious decision that I wouldn't go back into the corporate world. I would 
um, move away from New South Wales where I was living at the time. I moved back to Queensland. And I basically drove from the, the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast and said, okay, where am I going to be? In that belt somewhere. And I chose the Sunshine Coast. And I, I was pregnant. I had a baby in arms. I'd given up the corporate career to try and save the marriage, which obviously didn't work. And I decided that um, I was going to set up my own accountancy practice because I figured at least then, because I had all the qualifications, I you know you could poke a stick at basically, and I um, I decided that I would um, be at least in one spot, you know, because I couldn't with the corporate world. I really became the fix it, you know. I'd go under contract, I'd go into an organisation that was not doing well or or losing money. Um, you know, middle to middle-sized companies mostly. I would walk in there. I would turn it around. I would um, put systems into place. I would turn the profitability around, and I'd train somebody else to come in behind me to take over my position. And then I'd go onto another contract. So I couldn't do that with small children. Um, and I decided, well, I'll set up an accountancy practice. And um, I literally, eight months pregnant, you can imagine it, six to eight months pregnant, I was walking the streets of the Sunshine Coast, introducing myself to businesses. Um, setting up an accountancy practice and gaining clients, etc. Divorce and in a brand new city alone, Boholt knew she had to make ends meet to feed her family. It was a hard road and I was really in survival mode because when I walked out of divorce, I, I had a grand total of $40,000 in my back pocket. Not a lot of money to start all over with two kids on your own and a new business. Um, but I made it stretch. I... Um, I bought a two-bedroom fibro shack with an asbestos roof that leaked when it rained, and that's where I lived. Um, and I bought a 72-square-metre office where I ran the accountancy practice from. So, I mean, I was very, very good with money, money, you know, money management and things like that because that's that's been my whole career. Um, but it was tough. It was really, really tough. I mean, it hurts when you've got to put your six-week-old baby and your toddler into full-time daycare for somebody else to look after. But if I didn't work, they didn't eat. That was a reality. So that was my life as a single mum. And I built my business up. And it was it was really, I mean, I look back and say, you know, how come I only end up with 40, 40 grand considering how much money I earned in those early years? Because I earned a lot of money. And I know where it went. I mean, I spent it on my first husband, but you know, you live and learn. So long as you learn from your mistakes, they're mistakes, are they? <laughs> So I, um, I then, um, it was a couple of years of just really knuckling down and, and working really hard. I built the business up. And I remember sitting in my, my office, um, which faced the Western Sun. I had this big window that faced the Western Sun. It was most spectacular sunsets. And I remember sitting there thinking, my life is really hard. It's not so much that my life sucked. It was just it was hard. It was, you know, I'm working 40 to 60 hours a week, two small children to look after on my own, um, you know, you'd take files home from work and you'd play with the kids, put them to bed, feed them, bath them, all the rest of it. Then you'd fall asleep on the couch doing work and you get up the next morning and you do it all again. And it was just really, really hard. And I remember sitting there looking at this sunset thinking, I don't want this for the rest of my life. This is not what I planned out. You know, this is, this, I'm better than this. What else can I be doing? In an attempt to answer that question for herself, Boholt set aside time to ponder what she was going to do couple of weeks, what I did was I gave myself between five o'clock and six o'clock to answer this, what am I going to do with my life question? And it was, I had to knock off at about five to six because if you didn't pick up your children by six o'clock, they charged you a dollar a minute per child. So I had to, uh, I had to finish it. I had to pick them up by six. And, and for about a couple of weeks there, I really, I really just went into self-reflection and I, and I studied and I looked at things, you know, I looked at, well, maybe I should set up other businesses. I thought, well, I could maybe set up all these um, um, hairdressing salons. And I had visions of being Stefan, but I thought, you know, that's probably not the not the way to go. So I, because um, uh, I already had an accountancy practice. If I wanted to set up businesses, I could, you know, I could set up accountancy practices around the country if I wanted to. Yeah, I looked at, I looked at other things. I looked at um, I looked at the share market. Given that I've been financial controller of a stockbroking firm, I know what happens on the other side of the stock market industry. And um, I've got to tell you, I am very negatively biased to the, particularly the Australian stock market and how manipulated it is. But that's my personal opinion. Then I looked at multi-level marketing. I even went and joined Amway at the time. Um, and you know, all of the the multi-level marketing work. They absolutely do. What didn't work was me. It didn't suit my personality at all. So I thought, no, that's not for me. And then, I, then of course, that leaves property. With her mind now set on property, 
she began questioning how she could flip the traditional methods of property investing to make them work for her. I thought, well, you know, I can't afford to negatively gear, but everything that I had ever been taught from, you know, school onward with all of the training and everything, you know, a client comes in to see you and they whinge about paying too much tax, you say, well, you need to buy a negatively geared investment property, you know, this is how it works and this is how you can save tax and all these things. But when I looked at it for me, I thought, this is a mugs game. You know, I can't afford this negative cash flow um, because, you know, in the hope that the thing's going to go up in value because things were pretty tight back then. So I thought, well, maybe there's another way. Maybe if I bought a property that even looked after itself, does that even exist? And then, of course, I gave myself another couple of weeks to come up with a business plan because, um, you know, what's a business plan that's going to work? And I, I did research. I did analysis. I did analysis paralysis, I think. I did feasibilities upon feasibilities. And I came up with a business plan that I figured for me was going to work. And that was really creating a portfolio uh, of properties that were positively geared. Um, but my trouble, of course, was that I, I had to start with no money because I didn't have any. You know, all of my money had been tied up in the in the two properties. I didn't have any deposits to go and buy property. So I thought, that's great. I need to buy a positively cash flowed property without any money. And do you know the first three properties I bought were all positively cash flowed properties without any money at all? So, um, you know, that it's really about deciding on what you want and then and then working to a business plan to achieve that. And I think everybody should work to a two-year plan. You know, you can have your goals, dreams, aspirations that can be five years, 10 years, those sort of things, but you really should be able to accurately step out exactly what you're going to do over the next two years in a business plan. What properties, what strategy, how much money, how you're going to do it, what areas, what, uh, how much money it's going to cost to do this, that, or whatever else. And uh, I think that's something that's very important. Bolhold also shared an interesting story about how she believes other people's energy led her to make a bad investment. It's actually more of a um, an energetic, emotional story than anything else. I'll, I mean, I'll, yes, I've made some mistakes in real estate, but I'll, I'll share this one here with you first of all. Um, I must confess, I bought a negatively geared investment property. There you go. That's my that's my dirty little secret. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you why I bought it, which is what is really quite interesting. I was going through a time where um, a lot of people were coming to me, there's no students coming to me, and they, you know, they're basically coming in and dumping their stuff on me. Oh, this has gone wrong, and my business has gone wrong, and something's happened over there, and I've got negatively investment property, and whatever else. And um, I was energetically not protecting myself from uh, other people's stuff, for want of a better word. Um, and I felt I was taking on their burden and at a subconscious level, I felt I, I slipped back into um, a lot of childhood um, attitudes around money and those sort of things. And at the time, I went out and bought a property which was, oh, was a luxury property and obviously negatively geared and all of these kind of things. So, you know, it was the heartstrings that bought it, not the head. And, you know, it's, I think I still own the damn thing, but um, <laughs> but it, it obviously had an effect. It was negatively cash flow, and it was a big mistake. You know, I, I lost money on it or whatever. But uh, the reasons behind it, I think, are important. That you, you know, you can allow yourself to to take on other people's stuff, and uh, it's something you need to protect yourself from, um, and. Even in you know workplaces, a lot of us work in very toxic environments and things like that. Which uh, the negative attitudes, if you have them thrown at you enough, you you absorb some of that. Um, you have to have a regime every single day to uh, to raise your own energy levels and to to remain focused on what it is that you really want and what's right for you, and keeping in mind your bigger picture. Which it's very easy to allow. Um, life uh, to kind of take over that position and uh, and get you sidetracked and you turn around two or three years later and you you really know further ahead than you know you were except you're two or three years older. So I think focus is very important with that sort of thing and it it reminds me of a story of a um, I was actually talking to a friend of mine about a counsellor who counsels um, cancer patients and she was talking about how ironic it was that now she has cancer. And it was the same kind of scenario with me. 
um, you know, I'm counselling people on debt reduction and, and, you know, all of these things and, and not negative gearing and et cetera. And I ended up doing exactly the same thing at that time because, because of that, that protection mechanism not being there. She continues to explain why that was an important lesson for her to learn and tells us how she uses that lesson to this day. It's something that, uh, you know, I've obviously learned from that one property. Fortunately, it only took me one property to learn the lesson. Um, but uh, it's something that I, I now incorporate into my daily regime. Part of that is actually um, a daily focus session, which, you know, you can call it meditation, you can call it um, you can call it daydreaming, you can call it zero-based costing, you can call it whatever you want, you know, from a logistics perspective. But it's really a, a, a point in time where you, you focus within about who you really are, what you really want in life, um, and uh, what you're going to do to achieve that. Um, and, uh, and setting the intention of, of um, you know, your daily life, I suppose. Not just daily, but the bigger picture as well. Because when you do that, a lot of things happen. It's you know, I mean, I could get into a whole alternate talk here about your subconscious and things like that and, and how your reticular activating system is actually four components in, in your brain that come together that are, act, that are your focusing system. And what they do is they filter what's important to you into your conscious. So subconsciously, we can, we can process so much more than we can consciously. And, you know, if we had to, you know, looking around the room wherever you are now, if you had to take in everything that was happening in your room, you couldn't do it consciously, but subconsciously you can. And when you can actually learn to recall that subconscious, it makes um, you know memory recall and those sort of things so much easier. But on another level, this filtering system, um, it, it makes you notice what you've deemed to be important to you. But if you're not spending time programming your subconscious or your RAS system as what's important to you, then you go around blindly not seeing things. Um, you know, and this comes down to deals. You know, if you've focused on things and you go, right, what I need next is I need a chunk deal and I need to do, you know, I need a subdivision, it need to be at this kind of price, I need to do that and whatever else. And you've worked that through, whether it's in a meditation or whether it be on a pen and paper actually working out a little bit of a mini business plan, what you've actually done is you've programmed your RES system to absorb what that, that thing is that, that you want. Um, and you will see, you'll start to notice deals that can potentially be a subdivision deal. Bolholt provides an example and a story of why this habit and knowledge is so relevant to property investing. It's like when you go and buy a new car. Say you go and buy a yellow BMW. Before you buy the yellow BMW, nobody drives yellow BMWs. But as soon as you buy the yellow BMW, every man's dog's got a yellow BMW. (laughs) And it's not that there's any more or less yellow BMWs. It's just that you're now noticing it. I've got uh, a story comes to mind, which is these two um, two guys who lived uh, near each other in Frankston, in Melbourne, and they used to drive from Frankston, which is the southern part of Melbourne, up to the centre of the city every day, and they've been doing it for the last 15 years. They worked at the same place, they carpooled, etc. And for 15 odd years, they've been chatting about the weather and the football and family and whatever else in the car, going backwards and forwards. And then one day they decided to actually get themselves educated and they, come to, they came to one of my programs. Um, and within three weeks of doing the boot camp, they actually sent me an, a very excited email going, oh my God, you're not going to believe it. You know, we've been driving to work for the same, same road for the last 15 years and never saw anything. But after doing the boot camp, we've, got, we've seen three deals on the way to work. We've contracted on these three deals. One of them's probably going to fall over. We're going to make this much money out of the other one, this much money out of the other. They're everywhere. We didn't even know they were there before. And of course, those deals were there all the time, but they didn't see them. And it's something that that is so strong that you really need to spend that daily routine checking in with where you're at and what you want to do. You know, ask yourself some big questions like, "Are you happy?" She continues with another story. I'll give you another example, just how powerful this is. It was Valentine's Day this year, and I was actually working. And uh, my, I came home from work and drove my car into the garage and I, I walked up the back steps into the, into the house and I, I saw this big balloon. It said, Happy Valentine's Day. And I saw it was attached to a car and I thought, oh, isn't that lovely? And, and uh, I walked inside and I thought, why has he got it in the garage, for God's sake? Anyway, I go inside and my husband says, um, you know, oh, did, you see, did you see what's in the garage? I said, yeah, it was lovely. Thank you, darling. I, I thought you should give it to me. So we go out to the garage and there's this, say, there's this big heart-shaped balloon and the card and I read the card and I said, thanks very much. You know, that's lovely. And he kept looking at me going, is that it? I'm going, 
oh, it's lovely, thank you. What do you want me to say, you know? <laughs> and he goes, is that it? I'm going, what? And the card was sitting on a motorbike. He had bought me a motorbike, but I didn't see the motorbike because I wasn't expecting a motorbike. And I, I mind you, I don't have a motorbike license. I still haven't ridden the goddamn thing. But anyway, he decided I needed a motorbike. So I've got this big red motorbike. How do you not see a motorbike? <laughs> but it obviously wasn't programmed into my RAS system to see a motorbike. So if I can miss seeing a motorbike, you'll miss seeing a deal unless you actually program it in there. <laughs> You don't know what you're missing. That's the thing. Interestingly, Boholt shares how she completely replaced her accounting income with her real estate income in just one and a half years. You know, I don't think there was one aha moment. For me, it was more of a slow burn um, because when I made that decision sitting in my office looking at the sunset, it took me 18 months to totally replace my accountancy income I was working 40 to 60 hours a week for previously. So within 18 months, I had totally replaced my accountancy income with passive real estate income. And remember that the first three deals, I had to do no money down just to get going. So I, I don't think there is that, oh my God, that's amazing. It, it was very much a slow burn. And my whole life has been really more about that because I am constantly learning. I am constantly educating myself. I am constantly working on myself so that I can be a better leader, a better teacher for others as well. It's 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 an ongoing journey. I don't think it's something that ever stops. Um, and if you stop learning, you die. Um, so it's something I will continue to do. I mean, I have a goal that uh, I speak on stage when I'm over 100 and make sense. There's a qualifier there. I do have to actually make sense. <laughs> We'll see if I can meet that target. Well, that's just it. It's something that I'm, you know, I study on a lot of different things and, um, you know, health and nutrition is certainly on that list. After arriving in the Sunshine Coast and working long hours, Boholt knew she needed to get into the property game and bought her first property with two more to follow. But how did she do it with no money? And the first three deals... Um, I mean, there's, a, there's a, a longer story to it, but basically I, um, I found a seller who was in need and my seller was a guy who had committed into a, a shopping centre site and uh, he was a builder and developer. He had, uh, the banking industry had turned where it was quite tough to get loans um, and the market had turned so it was a bit hard to sell properties as well. Now, I picked his cheapest properties, which was a, a two little townhouses side by side. And um, what I did was, uh, first of all, I, I got in front of the, the developer directly because I wanted to negotiate myself. Now, that's not cutting the agent out. My agent was there. Um, I just wanted to create a deal that that uh, I could do because it wasn't just a price deal. Price was actually less important to me than the terms were. And to cut a long story short, what I negotiated with him to do was to basically lend me the 20% deposit on a personal loan agreement, um, and I had the personal loan agreement all done up, I actually negotiated it to be an interest-free loan for five years, and I could pay him as and when I could out of my business. So he thought I was going to pay him in dribs and drabs this 20%. Obviously, I borrowed the other 80%, and I paid him that money because I had serviceability. I didn't have any cash. Um, so that's how I, I got into the first property. I didn't pay him in dribs and drabs. What I did was I waited for till the fourth year. If the properties went up enough, um, I, re, uh, I would refinance those properties and pay him out the rest of the money. If they hadn't gone up as much as I would have liked, it gives me a year to sell that property, put whatever they have gone up in my pocket. Meanwhile, I've got four years worth of passive income and then I pay him out the other 20%. So I didn't negotiate in price. I actually got the pro I, I paid list price for the properties, which was over what he was expecting because um, everybody negotiates, but I got the terms that I wanted. And effectively, he vendor financed me the 20% deposit. Now, he had no intention of doing that. He had no intention of structuring a deal that way, but there wasn't a lot of buyers around. It wasn't a hot market. And if he wanted to sell the properties, this is a way I could make it happen. Any other way, I couldn't buy those properties. And, uh, you know, everybody won. You know, Bruce got, the, my agent got paid. Um, he got the price that he wanted eventually. 
and I got a property that I didn't have to put any any money in to actually buy, and it was positively geared. So everybody wins in that scenario. She even thought of a way to get the developer to keep his word when he asked her for his money early. I pulled out my contract and said, hang on, <laughs> I've actually got five years to pay this. And he said, oh, whatever. But um, when I paid him his money out uh, towards the end of the five years, he, he, he was very happy. He thought uh, he didn't think he was going to get his money, but he did. Well, that's why I dropped the contract the way I wanted it. <laughs> While Bolholt was new to the property game, she had a huge amount of financial experience behind her, which meant she had a different strategy than most investors had starting off. I think what's more important to your listeners is what I started with because now I'm a little bit different. You know, I I do bigger deals and that sort of thing, which is probably not where most people will be at listening. So I think it's it's the earlier years when I first started out that I think are more important. And um, I think a big part of growing your portfolio is actually um, you, you need to be balancing income and growth. Now, I don't keep anything apart from that one mistake that was <laughs> negatively geared. I mean, if at the end of the at the end of the strategy, I might I might buy it as negatively geared, but I'll do things to it to turn it into positive. And there's lots of strategies you can do to do that. Um, if at the end of the deal it's not positively geared, but I've elevated the value, I'll sell the property. You know, take my take my chunk money and put it back into the next deal. But all the time you're balancing off income and growth. And I think it's something whenever you buy or sell a property, you need to step back, don't get emotional about it and go, okay, and this is a really good question to ask and it's something you, your listeners should take take on board, is what does my portfolio need next? It's not what you want, what you like or anything else. It's what does my portfolio need next? Because every deal that you do, the next deal needs to strengthen your weakness. So for instance, if you've got low equity, you don't have a lot of money, then your next deal needs to be a chunk deal. You need to do a deal where you're elevating the value of the property in some form um, so that at the end of the deal, whether you refinance or whether you sell that property, you're in a stronger position for having that property than before you before you bought it. Conversely, if you're low in serviceability, you've got a low job or you don't have a job, um, you need to buy properties that are strongly, positively geared because that next property needs to strengthen your position. And you always should be thinking two deals ahead. So so you never get into a deal that if at the end of the deal, you haven't got enough money to get into the next one. So you've either got to be, by getting into the deal, elevating the value so that that gives you the momentum to get into the next one, or that um, it's a sell and then you take that money and go into the next one. So the end of the deal, you should always have be in a position to get into the next deal. Otherwise, you've chosen the wrong strategy. It doesn't work. Because you, you need that momentum to be able to keep investing. And that's what replaces your income. It's the ongoing, consistent um, you know, investing with the underlying rule that you don't keep anything that's not positive. Um, and every deal needs to strengthen your weakness. And at the end of every deal, you need to be in a position to go into the next one. After hitting rock bottom during her divorce, a strong mindset is what helped her get back onto her feet and allowed her to succeed in the property world. Well, one I think the biggest thing is belief system, belief in yourself, um, and and getting out there. Actually, just turning up and getting out there. You know, talking to people. Real estate is something that everybody thinks is um, you know you can do behind a computer. You can't. It's very much a people business. And the more people you connect with, the more opportunities present themselves. And when you're, you know, we spoke before about your area system and things like that, you know, there's a lot more to that. There's, there's energy levels, there's electromagnetic fields, there's, um, you know, the chemical reactions that go in your body when you have certain thoughts, processes, and those sort of things. The whole thing kind of comes together to, to be who you are. And I always had uh, a very core belief system that, you know, if that's what I decided to do, I could make it happen. I had no idea how I was going to replace my income in 18 months when I first started. It wasn't even really that I planned to do that. It was just that I knew I needed to make passive income um, because that's how I was going to have more time with my children. And time with my children was was my overarching why Um, because when you're working 40, 60 hours a week, you're a lousy mother. Um, And I knew that and uh, I needed to do something in order to, to recreate that kind of time with kids. So passive income was definitely the vehicle. 
the exact how, I didn't know. I knew it had to be passive, positively cash flowed properties, but beyond that, back then I really didn't know. And it was really a matter of um, taking one step at a time and having the belief system that something would show up. You know, one way or another, I'll make it happen. I don't know how, but I'll make it happen. Following her success in the property market, Boholt decided she couldn't close her accounting practice. Well, I didn't actually close the accountancy practice. Um, I'd replaced my income, which basically meant I continued to work, but I could, you know, I could take a day off and play with the kids on the beach if I if I chose to. But I kept the accountancy practice going, um, and uh, and because I, I, I decided I couldn't be a full time mum either, um, and I continued to invest. But it gave me the luxury then of of basically being able to choose, you know, what I wanted to do. And I I can't remember the number of years, but I kept that business going then for a number of a number of years thereafter. But what I did do is I put into place a retirement plan. So I didn't want to close the practice. I mean, you know, I liked my clients. I liked talking to my clients. I, you know, I respected that, you know, they didn't want me to just shut up shop either. So I brought other people into my business with a view to um, replacing myself in the business. And that took about two and a half to three years where I was in a position that I could actually step out of the business. I still owned half of it. Uh, I could step out of the business, still get paid from the business as well as my property income, um, but not have to work in it. But that was two two to three years in the planning to be able to do that. It's not something you can do overnight. But see, I'd already replaced my income with real estate. So it wasn't the income I needed to, to, to work on. It was just the practicality of how can I evolve this business into something that will continue to generate me a salary and income as well as um, look after all the clients and grow and, you know, all my employees. I mean, I had employees I had to look after. You can't just go, sorry, I've replaced my income. I'm out of here. Look after yourself, guys. You know, there's responsibilities there. And um, all of them were taken care of and all that sort of thing. So, it's all part of the process. So, how did she do it? How did she manage to go from single mum to millionaire? Was there a book that taught her all these savvy tips? Was it dumb luck? Or was it guts? Perhaps it was all three. You know, more than education, I actually think it was guts. But back when I was doing this, this was not something that was common. I mean, even the word positive gearing, I don't think it was in the dictionary. I really don't. Um, And it was not something that anybody else was doing. Somebody that I had listened to that I thought um, made a lot of sense was someone by the name of Dr. Dolph DeRoos. Now, we actually became friends um, and I've spoken on stage with him many times. I actually had him on one of my US tours when he was you know, living in the States and we've spent some time together since then. But he was somebody I respected with um, you know, his attitude around positive gearing and things like that. Obviously, Kiyosaki with his Rich Dad Poor Dad book. But I mean, whilst it was a great mindset book and it's really changed the um, you know, the mindset of a whole generation. It's a fantastic, uh, a fantastic book to get your children to read and things like that. It gets their head in the right spot, which I think is, you know, eighty percent of the battle. Um, it doesn't have a lot of the how-to. There's not, there's not um, uh, the, a step-by-step process, which for me probably became the easy part because of all my business training, because of all my, um, you know, my logistics training and analytics and all of those sort of things. The how-to I could work out, the the motivation I needed and the belief system I needed, uh, but the how-to, that's where I had my strength, where you know the, the likes of Robert Kiyosaki is, a lot of his strategies don't work in Australia for starters, and um, he he's not a technical guy. He doesn't, doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of exactly how it has to be done, and in particular, how it has to be done in Australia, but that was my strength. I already had that. Um, once I once I worked out the formula, I already had the logistics, I had the strategies, I had the um, you know the how to because that was my training and whether it's the business training, you know, or all of everything that I'd ever done in the past kind of really set me up to go. That's what we got to do. After a few months, Bolholt had a successful accounting business as well as a huge portfolio. And eventually, she decided to get into running seminars to share her knowledge. Well, I actually started um, on stage, speaking on stage, teaching accountants how to teach their clients about asset protection. But uh, I mean, I'd spoken on radio and things like that before about doing market updates and reports when I was in Canberra and those sort of things. But 
really um, speaking on stage came about out of a need because my accountancy practice got ridiculous because once I replaced my income, I got very excited about it. And I thought everybody should replace their income. And this is how you do it. You've got to do this, and this, whatever. And so you had to book like three months in advance to see me. It was ridiculous. Um, and I got to a stage where I thought, I am saying the same thing 50,000 times a day. I need to just put them all in one room and say the same thing once. So I started to do my own little client seminars. And, you know, I'd have 40, 50 people in a room that were all my clients and, and we'd do a training session and we'd do another training session. I was just doing it really to, to help my clients and added value because that's what really what they wanted to know. They didn't want me – anyone could do their taxes, but what they really wanted to know was – the business analytics and the, um, you know, the, the the property and the income replacement and all of the other things that that um, I was talking about, and then I got asked to speak at other people's events because they heard me speak somewhere. Um, so I started there, and then um, one of my clients um, was in a um, uh, she was setting up a, a business which um, was a, an education business. And she said, would you come into partnership with me? And um, her name was Sandy Foster. And uh, we started Wildly Wealthy Women together. So we did Wildly Wealthy Women together for, I don't know, four or five years, I think, something like that. Three, four years, I think it was. And um, yeah, so that's when I really sort of started to, to ramp that up with her. And by this stage, I was pretty much out of my accountancy practice anyway. Um, and, uh, then, uh, knowledge source asked me to speak with them. Um, and then when wildly wealthy women kind of finished off, I just continued on with knowledge source who, who does all of the organization and everything for, uh, everything that I do and has done it ever since 2006, I think. Knowledge source is a separate company that hire her to speak at their seminars. We have a, a, um, you know, long standing arrangement, obviously, um, and I very rarely speak for anybody else. Um, and, uh, you know, and if I do, I run it through them because I let them handle all of that side of it. Because, um, you know, if I had to keep my head in all of that stuff, I, I'd go insane. I've got too much other stuff on my mind that's far more important to me than doing, you know, promotional administration type stuff. So um, they handle all of that side of things. I get very excited about, about teaching people. I get very excited about seeing people evolve and replace their income and then and actually bringing them through the ranks to become leaders because that's my next mission. I've, you know, I've helped thousands of students over the years to replace their income. It's now about I need to be um, selecting leaders to come through to, um, to duplicate, you know, the legacy that I've created within I Love Real Estate and other things. And, and I think you've interviewed Jason and Amy. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're two of my leaders that have, that have come through my programs. I've got others coming through that, that, uh, you know, that's the next round that I, I, I've got a fab, fabulous team, um, who can do all of the things that, you know, I've been doing for so many years, which then of course frees me up to do more in-depth, um, and higher level stuff, motivational and higher level, um, property training. Behind every leader is a great team. Bolholt shares how she's able to have so much going on at once. I've got a great team. I've got a fabulous team. You know, my team here on the farm are fabulous. The Knowledge Hills team are fabulous. The, you know, all of the professionals. I mean, I've created a, um, you know, a team of professionals who, who support all of my students in all of the, the, um, the varying facets that they need, like finance, like legal, like accounting, like financial planning, insurances, all of these things are all fundamental elements to be the most successful over, you know, in everything. And I've got a team of professionals that back me up in all of those sectors. And, and I think what's important as a leader is to create the right culture. And over the years, you know, there's been a few um, ups and downs with that, obviously. But, um, you know, my team is fabulous and the, the culture of support and genuine desire to see the students and your clients succeed is is um, is palpable and that's what's important and I'm very humbled by it I mean it's not something you know it may sound like I'm I'm skiding but it's not I'm very very humbled by 
these amazing people that have come together um, to to fulfil, I guess, my dream and and cause and make it their own. Um, and it's it's making massive difference, you know, massive difference in people's lives. I mean, as an economist, I can get very excited about just how, um, you know, by changing one family unit, one family unit can can change financially, and it changes. A whole community just by changing one family unit, and economically, I can sh- I can you know I can do the calculations and work out how many times a dollar goes around Australia and things like that. But we have a lot of social problems in this country that you know there's there's drugs, there's a violence, there's all these things. And if you get right down to it, the root cause of most of it is financial insecurity, and it's so ridiculous because that's the easiest thing to fix. You know, I've taken on. Um, the last two years, we've taken on groups of kids. Now, these kids are between the ages of 18 and 22. And uh, the first year, one of one of them was my daughter. Um, and it's basically, they're coming in with nothing, nothing. And, and saying, well, you know, these are the new millenniums. What are we going to do with them? You know, how can they get into real estate when everyone's complaining about the prices being too high and this and that? Now, you know, you can track their story. We've got these, these next seven. I've got seven kids this year. Uh, and we only we've only been working with them for nine months. So in November, on the 17th, 18th, and 19th of November, I've got a big um, national super conference. It's actually in Queensland this year, and uh, anyone can come along to that. Actually, there's a fee for it, obviously, but uh, you can come along to it. And we it's basically an expose of success. So I will be selecting um, students from my community to come on stage with me and share their story. And we'll be showcasing these seven kids, the Property Games kids, and how far they've come within nine months, which is not a lot of time. But I mean, I step back and say, well, you can grow a baby in nine months, so you can do anything with a couple of kids. But (laughs) these kids, honestly, I think they're one of them. um, They are all into deals, um, you know, and they're doing all sorts of strategies to get into deals. And, you know, one of them's, I don't know, about 90K up, on the property he's got for sale at the moment. Um, the, the two girls have teamed together and in their deal is about oh, about 168 from memory profit in that, but it'll take them a little while to complete that deal. Um, uh, another one's doing a small one, which is about 80K in that one. Um, who else have we got? Oh, Liam, what's he doing? He's got... Um, yeah, there's about 300 in that, so he'll get about half of that, another 150 there. So... In only four months, Boholt managed to train up and change these kids' lives. We had to train them first. Like, we get these new green kids and it took us four months to train them. So, you know, to be able to do a feasibility, be able to do a reverse feasibility and to do it standing on their head and to be able to, to know what this costs and that costs and that strategy and, and analyse deals. and So that took four months of working with them directly. So they're only really, in the last month or so, actually been out live doing deals. Um, and so it, it's been a whirlwind, I can say, you know, with these kids. But it's just so remarkable as to how far they've they've come in such a short space of time. And I'll have them on stage with me um, middle of November at the uh, at the super conference and just share their story. And it's you know they're young kids. I mean, you know, you say that yet. Let me tell you a story. Um, a number of years ago, I thought, this needs to be taught in schools. We need to get into the schools. And I thought, well, it's the year 10 where you can make the most difference because they're not grade 11 and 12 where they've got to get marks and grades and whatever else. Year 10, you've got some flexibility. So we contacted a local school and um, I said, look, this is what I'm planning to do. And I've got the lawyers on board. I've got some tradies on board. I've got um, one of Stockland's on board, etc. And what we're going to do is get a piece of land um, and build a house. And the, the year 10 students through the year would build the house. They would do all the costings. They would do all the market analysis research. They would, um, you know, select the tiles. And the, it, it, I think I had four grade 10 um, classes. So they each had a part of the, the house that they were in control of and, and teach them how to do it. And then at the end of it, and, and you know, people are going to donate their time and donate this and donate that. And, and Stockland was going to donate the land for the publicity and whatever. And uh, whatever money was made would sell it at the end of the year and that would go to the school. And I thought that was a great thing to teach the kids real life how to do it. Um, and they said and the principal was on board. Everything was great. He said, I've just got to get it cleared through the Queensland Education Department. OK, 
came back and said, no, we're not allowed to make a profit. Oh, I was so cranky. I had all these things lined up. They're not allowed to make a profit. For God's sake, what's life about? <laughs> it would have been so good for those kids. And anyway, and we were going to use it, like film the whole thing and use it as a pilot so that other schools, if they wanted to, they could roll it out themselves. But, you know, never happened. We find out from her if she had any mentors or leaders that helped her along her journey. I have my own people. I have my own people within. Um, and uh, that's where I bring my leaders up through that. And I've got some, you know, one amazing guy who, you know, I call him the mini Anthony Robbins because he really is. He's fantastic from a motivational perspective. And, and uh, you know, he'll, he'll be out doing things very shortly on his own or with me, but, you know, um, in, on, our, on his topic, I've got some fantastic trainers who, who are really fantastic at varying strategies um, and, uh, you know, they will continue to, uh, to, to train and educate in those strategies themselves. So I really um, nurture from within. Um, I guess there's, um, you know, there's, there's one old friend that I've kind of roped in because he's been in the industry a million years and he adds a lot of experience to the, to the whole world and his name's Kevin Doodney. Um, and he really started a lot of the, um, you know, the smaller spaces and, uh, and, uh, he's the, uh, the future housing task force, um, leader. Uh, and he, uh, you know, a lot of people have copied what he does. Um, but he's the originator and, and he's, I guess, one of the only ones that I kind of bring in externally who, who, um, I just know adds a lot of benefit to the, uh, to the community. With so much experience and knowledge, Boholt felt the need to share it all. Here are some of the books she's written that can help you on your property journey. Oh, look, I've written a stack of books. I mean, my story is Confessions of a Real Estate Millionaire. But then I've gone on to, to write specific um, books on certain things. So I've got Asset Protection Secrets of a Real Estate Millionaire. I've got Tax Secrets of a Real Estate Millionaire. I've got 101 10 Top Tips in Real Estate. Uh, I've got the Peg in the Sand Journal, which is basically a um, how to step out two years of investing in the, through um, you know, goal setting and things like that. Um, I've uh, I've got the Finance Secrets of a Real Estate Millionaire due to come out very, very shortly. I've got um, the Real Estate Millionaire Within, which is all about mindset um, and, and getting yourself market ready from an internal perspective, not just a financial perspective. That'll be out very shortly. Um, I'm writing a couple of other books. I'm writing a kid's book at the moment. I've got lots of things on. <laughs> she also has a personal habit that will help change your life and get you started in property or in any endeavor you're thinking of pursuing. Look, I think that 15 minutes a day, it's all it takes. 15 minutes a day just focusing on you. Now, whether you do that, you know, eyes shut to music or whether you sit down with just a piece of paper and really write things out and, and, and you know, spend a little bit of time daydreaming about about you and what you want in life and the way you want your life to pan out and things like that, I think is very important. And 15 minutes is all it takes, but it needs to be every single day. And it will change your life forever. It honestly will. Um, something else that I think that is very important is consistency um, and being regimented in that consistency. I mean, you know, if you go to the gym, going to the gym once is not going to change your body. Um, but if you are consistently doing things and your consistent application and termination, that's what will that's what will make the difference. That's what gets results. Uh, and it's it's just the application of that over a long period of time, which is why little techniques like a reward system, even on a daily basis, um, you know, of something that I'll I'll get this done and then I'm going to go and do that. I'll get this done and then I'm going to go and do that. Just those little mind games that you play with yourself throughout the entire day make such a big difference. Um, you know, it, it's really about having um, respect for yourself that you don't let yourself down by um, saying you're going to do something and then don't do it, you know, because little by little what that does is it chips away at who you really are and you will only achieve who you see yourself being. Uh, you will only put into practice what you see yourself doing and it, it's really um, keeping that self-image protected, keeping that self-image very um, uh, very secure because that is your life, that is your destiny because you will become that person. Looking back in hindsight, she shares what she'd tell herself 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I would say you're in for a wild ride there, girl. <laughs> um, you know, everything, everything you do 
creates who you are, good and bad. Um, good and bad experiences create who you are. And uh, I really feel it's not something that you go back and say, oh, I wish I'd done this, oh, I wish I'd done that. Uh, because, you know, even the mistakes are benefits to you if you learn from them. Thank you to Diffner Bolholt, our guest on this episode of Property Investory.